Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Ann Roby, an HR advisor and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture. And I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. So Anne, for years, you had been telling me about your friend Forrest. You had been raving, what an awesome guy he is. And I'm thinking, yeah, I've met some of your friends. They are all really awesome. And then on one of our trips to San Diego where we met up, we got to connect with Forrest. And I'm just going to say it was instantly obvious to me why you love him so much. Speaking of love, Forrest and I first met in college. We were on the same floor in the same dorm, Sproul Hall, baby, UCLA. And I think I had a little bit of a mad crush on Forrest when I first met him. I'm like, who is that cutie patootie? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) Y'all can't see him, but he's already turning a little bit pink around the cheeks. (laughs) But here's the deal. I mean, part of the reason why I probably had that little mad crush is that Forrest is just so kind and caring and so, so, so wicked smart. So throughout the years, we've loosely kept in touch. But when I started joining Sherry and her husband in San Diego for their annual trip, it was a great opportunity to reconnect with Forrest since that's where he lives. He and I had the opportunity to do a little bit of work together at one of my previous companies. So that was super fun and really solidified the rekindling of our friendship. But mostly every time I talk to Forrest, I just leave feeling inspired. And I will tell you that I am not the only person that feels that way. So Forrest has no idea what's coming next, but we're going to share some messages from some people he knows. So here we go. Uh, The same girls that I went to school with are the same people that know and love Forrest so much. So I thought I would just ask them what they remember, what they love about Forrest. Maria, how about you? My first memory of Forrest was with him walking down the hallway, fourth floor sprawl, and seeing him in this really put together looking <laughs> trench coat. And he just had this walk that just made me think, wow, he's someone I really want to get to know. And I'm so glad I did. Fashionista from the start. <laughs> Amy, how about you? Oh my God. Forrest was always so accommodating and welcoming to me. I was a Sproul ride-along. I lived in a different dorm, but everybody in the Sproul dorm was so kind, and Forrest continues to bring me into his life in a lovely way, so I appreciate that. Awesome. And Chrissy and Anna, how about you guys? What do you love about Forrest? What I love about Forrest is that, it's funny, somehow he has the uncanny ability to make you feel special. Anna, how about you? What I remember about Forrest is his kindness and his ability to make everything fun. He used to always take me to fraternity parties, (laughs) which made it uh, an absolute blast. Awesome. We hope you're getting the message, Forrest, that we love you. Message received. Oh, that's awesome. That's the first time you're hearing that. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel, honestly, a little self-conscious because I'm I'm guessing that whoever's listening to this is like, who is this Forrest person? (laughs) (laughs) How the F am I going to live up to this? (laughs) Um, But it also is really touching because I think we go through a lot of our lives, maybe not sharing with each other what we mean to each other. Mm. And the more opportunities we can do to create that, where we share who we really are and also the impact other people have on us, 
I think the better. So thank you for that. Because awesome. I don't know if you hadn't done that. I don't know if I'd ever know those things. Definitely I didn't know you had a crush on that. <laughs> I never would have guessed that. I'm barking up the wrong tree. Exactly. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that, I'm sure. But, but on the note of getting to know you, you know, we really generally start out these episodes with just a just a wide open question, and and we'd love to just to get to know a little bit more about you. Tell us about your journey. You've had such an interesting life, and you've had twists and turns, and we'd love to just hear a little bit about what that journey has been like for you. Sure. Um, yeah, my it is interesting. My journey is a bunch of twists and turns. I love that it couldn't have predicted the different chapters of my life. And when I think back to it, it kind of roughly maps out to decades, but grew up in this sort of idealized suburban world, this like first planned community called Columbia, Maryland, that could be a podcast unto itself. <laughs> it's like designed to be a utopia, like a really? social utopia. And I didn't realize that the rest of the c- country was not like that. It was actually <laughs> one of the first places. It was designed to be a place where all people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, races, religions could all live in the same area in harmony. And so, um, yeah, I was really surprised when I moved to Los Angeles. <laughs> but it was a big uh, shock. <laughs> found out the world was a little different out there. Yeah, it was definitely a big shocker. So when I saw Fast Times Ridgemont High, my fate was sealed. I decided I was moving <laughs> to California. Is that how you got to this Jeff Spicoli blonde hair that you had at that one point? I did used to have curly blonde hair. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, I never thought about it that way, but I really, this is so weird. I can't believe I really admired Spicoli and it's Mm -hmm. because I was so driven and so trying to like be perfect on so many levels. Mm -hmm. And I love that there was this dude that was so laid back and hilarious and really didn't care about outcomes. It's a strange role model, but I've always like, (laughs) wow, that's pretty neat. That's awesome. Mr. Hand. (laughs) (laughs) I went to UCLA and that's where I met you, lovely Anne And uh, that was like my emancipation was moving to Los Angeles and having the freedom to start to explore being who I really was, which was great. And uh, my 20s were really about finding myself in the film industry. And I love it. I've always loved movies. Movies are actually how I process my emotions, which is like a weird thing. But there you go. And I worked my way up from fetching coffee to producing. And then when I get closer to my thirties is when I have another transition, which is falling in love and realizing I can't keep working in film and going away for six months at a time on location. I need to settle down. That took me to San Diego, but that was like the decade of confusion. Who am I? What do I do? And that's when I realized I had too much identity wrapped up in what I did. That was a big mistake Yeah, that created years of turmoil. I went back to business school in my mid thirties, I was definitely one of the oldest people there. I threw up my hands. I'm like, I don't know what to do. And I don't know who I am. So I'll just study a little bit of everything in business school. And that was a big turning point in my life because fortunately, but it seemed at the time, unfortunate, I picked UC San Diego and their brand new business school. And my cohort was all scientists, engineers. Really? I, I worked on like Free Willy too. Or Mortal Kombat, you know, <laughs> what am I doing here with all these really smart people? What came out of that, though, and that would actually be kind of an interesting thing to talk about, is 
learning that what set me apart was actually what gave me the most value, especially within that cohort, because I became the person that people wanted to be in like team projects with, et cetera, because of my different way of thinking. And I like putting on a show or performance or as Anna said, making things fun. Yeah. Even if we were doing like a stats presentation, I'd have a different way of doing it for holding attention. Yeah. And then out of that, I discovered my love of branding and brand storytelling. And that's where my forties was really about building my practice. So I am careening into my fifties with a bunch of new projects. So new book, we bought a hay farm that we're turning into an idea ranch or, or summer camp for our friends, as I like to say. And I am evolving my work in the brand storytelling space into this man called Big Work. And that's something I really love as well. And also getting ready to publish my first classes on Thinkific. Woo, that is a lot of twists and transitions and changes. And I'm really curious, you started out by saying that like you came out of college and you didn't really know who you were or what you wanted to do. And it's been a bit of a question for you. And you've talked a lot about the what, like the what you want to do, what your career has looked like. And I'd love to hear more about the who part of this. I think that's a great question because actually when I was preparing for this, I noticed that almost all the things I outlined were work-related. Oh, look at that. Mm. And I was like, <laughs> well, where's the rest of my personal right. life? And you thought you could sneak that by us? Have you met us? <laughs> you totally busted me. The who. When I look back through everything that I've done, it's all been around creating things out of thin air, mm. out of my imagination. And the earliest I think back to that is my grandmother, Mimi, I would go stay with her and there wasn't a lot to do. It was a pretty like small, modest house. All the furniture was covered in plastic. And I was- <laughs> As you did back in the day. The yeah, totally. <laughs> and I would have to entertain myself while she watched, you know, The Price is Right, <laughs> which I do love. And uh, I would take like all the little tchotchkes from the living room, like ashtray, marbles, and like little statues and dishes. And I would create a miniature golf course on the carpet <laughs> and use the little marble and like do like a complete, like elaborate miniature golf course. I see why you are able to start an idea farm in Colorado. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Fast forward, I work in films, right? Which is nothing but like a bunch of people getting together to, to take an idea, which is turned into a script and make it real so other people can see it. To brand storytelling, which is helping brands actually like articulate and then activate who they are, or what their promise is. And now, because that's the work I really love to do these days, is creating space for that and having people come together to create things. I love that. And I'm still going to push you a little bit further. I mean, you use some words when you're talking about your journey, like your emancipation from Maryland, your 20s just being a mess and not knowing yourself. So I want to hear a little bit more, like, what did it feel like to be emancipated? And would you have used that language then? I'm just curious about what your emotional and thought process was about just kind of getting out of Dodge when you were 18 years old, right? So I think what it was, was I can look back and appreciate where I was brought up to be a closeted gay kid in the eighties in a suburban place felt like a giant trap. Yeah. And I got really good at pretending to be other people and mm. pretending to be like the perfect 
son or the perfect classmate or whatever. But underneath that was sheer terror. Right. So moving to Los Angeles was this great big urban sandbox where I knew I could play and be a little bit more myself. I was still not myself with you and Maria, you know, all the people yeah. on the dorm floor. I was very scared about that and the ramifications and very calculated about how I came out. I think what that speaks to and part of who I am at my core is a chameleon. So I've learned to like adapt to any situation, which by its nature is adaptive, but you also lose, it is very hard for me to identify who am I? Mm. And I've fought this. I wish, like, I like iconoclasts that are very clear, like, this is who this person is. And I'm like, who the hell am I? Because I'm, I, depending on my situation, I even have a different register in my voice. So yeah, part of me is a chameleon and I fight very hard to go against my grain and my grain is to please other people Mm -hmm. to appear good. So even preparing for this podcast, I had to fight the inclination, like what will sound impressive or what will people like? Right. And I'm calling myself out of my own bullshit by saying it out loud in the podcast. Which is awesome. And very brave, honestly. You know, when I think to that era of you being sort of 20 and trying to figure out kind of who you really were and how you wanted to show up in the world, you know, even the thought of, quote, being emancipated from the planned community in Maryland, I mean, that even took kind of a really thoughtful person to really know that that's what was going to be important. I mean, our brains are so still not developed at age 18, right? And so I'm I'm curious about that journey a little bit of you knew that you wanted to play in the urban sandbox that is Los Angeles, or maybe you didn't, you wouldn't have articulated in that way, but that's sort of what presented itself. But this lifelong journey to, to now in your 50s, still, we're still, I mean, all of us, right? We're like peeling back the onions about who we really are. Talk to us a little bit about that process and, and how you got a little braver. I mean, you said you're calculated in the way you showed up, for instance, in the dorms, but slowly you started letting yourself be seen truly for who you are. So talk to us about that process and how you're still, it sounds like going through it as we all are in some ways. Well, I think one of the things I've learned about myself is I'm always up for a big adventure. Mm. There's this dichotomy. I've learned that I need to have schedule and ritual in my life for balance Mm. so I don't become untethered. And I need to give myself permission to fuck it all up every once in a while and to go in a new direction so that I don't get stale. I am keenly in touch, even if I'm not in touch with a lot of my emotions, (laughs) I'm keenly in touch with being bored or feeling static Mm. and stagnant. And so I like when adventure, adventurous opportunities, like buying a hay farm, plop into my lap. <laughs> right. I have this litmus. If somebody asks me to do something and I am, and it scares me like in a bungee jumping kind of a scare in my stomach, say yes. Mm. Not in a perilous way, but like if it, if it makes me uncomfortable. That's your signal. That's your sign. Right. Yeah, it is my sign, and I think it's a lot of people's signs. Actually, I mean, from I think that's true, but I also think that people tend to ignore some. You know, when I, you know, when some people get really scared, that's the time that they sort of pull away, and yet you sort of run toward at that point. I have to know it's a life force. I spent, like I said, after I left film and didn't really know what to do with myself, I shrank, mm. like I shrank and I shrank and I shrank, and I was scared 
And it took me a long time to come out of that. Mm. Now what I see is if somebody says, Hey, can you do this? Like, especially professionally. And I'm like, I have no freaking clue. I've never done that before, but I don't say that. I'm like, sure. sure. I can do that. <laughs> and then I, have, then I run to like Google or YouTube. Like, like, How do, do I facilitate a session? <laughs> totally. I'm going to do a six hour zoom workshop. Okay. Oh, yeah. right. Keep everybody's attention. Yeah. So there's this interesting dichotomy. I think it's a dichotomy in what you just said about there's this part of you that is not only jumps into adventure, but needs it, right? Needs this balance of structure and ritual and adventure. And you also talked about there's still this part of you, this part of young forest that you're carrying with you through your life that wants to fit in, that doesn't really want to be fully authentic. Like there's this fear of, I don't want people to see too much of me, it sounds like. And I'm really struck by the fact that the first book you wrote, and we'll talk later on about your newest book, but the first book you wrote is called Being Different matters. Right? It's what we need right. to learn, Sherry. <laughs> and, so and I know that book is all about for people on a non-traditional career path, which is a little bit what you've described for yourself. I'd say a little bit for myself. I started out very traditionally and then took a big giant veer, but it's geared for people to put together a really compelling story, right? Of the path they're on and where they've gone. But I think it's really interesting that as somebody who has worked really, really hard to not be different, you named your book Being Different Matters. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. I love that you pointed out the paradox there. And I feel like all the great universal truths are paradoxes. Yes, I have spent a good deal of lifetime and energy trying to be someone who I am not. Over the years, and as I get older, I have been falling in love with pieces of myself that I had tried to obscure. Mm. So that book is a direct outcome of my experience in being an MBA, being really embarrassed of like my career in film before in the midst of all these people who held like genomic patents and things like that. Hey, Free Willy 2 is a great movie. Come on. <laughs> and I had a really good time, but I didn't think that was very impressive. And of course, as somebody who cared what other people thought, I was judging everything on a scale of how impressive is this? And then, of course, like I said earlier, I discovered that what set me apart and some of the things that made me different from everybody else is actually what made me most valuable in that cohort. And I very easily stood out. And I actually remember we were doing like a career resources exercise or something. And I decided, I was like, of all the words I want people to think of when they think of me, I want them to think creative. And I didn't realize this at the time, but this was like sort of neural network stuff. And I wanted to create like a synaptic reaction where if you heard the word creative, you would think forest. And I knew that that was different than the skill sets and gifts of all my classmates. I don't know why I thought that, but I did. That's really cool though. It's stuck. And it's actually, there's some like nods to this in the book, but I mean, I have gotten hit up on LinkedIn over a decade later and somebody's like, Hey, we were in this meeting. I know we haven't talked since business school, but somebody brought up blah, blah, blah. And it was something about creativity or imagination. And I immediately thought of you, are you still doing consulting in this? And I get jobs out of that. So it was your first really successful branding project. 
Was me. Yourself. Yeah. Oh my God. I never thought of it, but you're right. Yeah. I did. I mean, the other thing I love about the story you just told is we talked a lot on the podcast about listening to the whispers that we have internally, because so often we ignore, you know, there's something inside saying, Anne, you should leave your job or Forrest, you should be known to be creative, right? And yet we often ignore those things. And so I'm wondering, like, were you getting this whisper or was it still part of like packaging yourself up in some way? So do you, do you know, do you understand the difference in what I'm asking? Yeah. So what do you think? I don't know if it was a whisper, more of like a sledgehammer and the sound of like metal gates falling all around me. And I was trapped. That's really interesting. It goes to this thing that I think you're really blessed with is like an intuition, Hmm. being able to follow it. Sometimes I need to be smacked upside the head and enough doors have to close for me to see the one that has been wide open the entire time with like bright red Hmm. lights on the other side of it. But that's such a beautiful way to put it, because I think, I think we've said it on the podcast before, Sherry, you know, people are living lives of quiet desperation, right? Right. And so there's, there are these signs, whether it's that quiet whisper, or it's the sledgehammer, or it's the flashing light on the freeway, like go this way, you know, whatever. And yet it's often like, nope, nope, putting my head down, you know, this is what I'm supposed to do. And so I know you're slightly making fun of yourself in some ways, but I just, I really want to honor that because as quote obvious as it might have been at some point, a lot of people still would have ignored that. You were in business school. You could have gone into accounting, nothing against accountants, but like you could have gone a totally hey, different Hey, I was an accounting major. <laughs> nothing. That was your <laughs> swerve, wasn't it? Actually, she had to swerve out of it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but I really want to honor that. And what a role model for other people to be listening when we get those messages. It occurred to me as you were speaking that. It is now like with the work I do that I call big work, it is like the fire in my belly that I want to shake people that are at work, especially in big corporations, that I want to shake them out of their slumber or get them out of the matrix, give them the, you know, give them the red pill and say, look, you don't have to do it this way. You can fall in love with your work again. Here's how you can do that. And by the way, you can actually get better results and do more and have more time left. Yeah. Because a lot of what we do is a waste of time, yeah. especially in, our, in the workforce. That drives me insane. No, but and to your point, I think it, I love how you said it, wake people out of their slumber, right? Because we all are sort of saluting at some point and, you know, not necessarily living kind of who the truth of who we really, really are. Can you imagine if everybody that came to work brought like all their hidden like talents that they don't think are related to work, brought all their passions and excitement and energy. And they came, it was combustible for a few hours. Like all these people came together, you did amazing things. Then you went back and refilled. Right. And then you came back and you did it again. Yeah. Imagine like the leaps that you would create. Yeah. Rather than like just answering messages and emails, it would be transformative for an organization. And for the individuals in that organization. Right. And I'm so curious to talk about this a little bit more because in order to do that, I'm imagining people or we all would have to get really vulnerable. Mm. Right. I mean, that is so often what is the big block to creativity and thinking beyond the way we're all trying to protect ourselves in some fashion. And so either from a personal perspective on 
what levels of vulnerability have you had to work through to get there? Or from the perspective of the work you do with other people, how do you navigate creating the space for people to be more vulnerable in those situations or creating the space for yourself to be more vulnerable? I think I've come to accept that the more I show up as myself, the more success I have with Mm -hmm. the groups that I work with. So for those of you who don't know, a big part of the work I do is what I call big work, but I facilitate high functioning groups in tackling their toughest challenges in the shortest amount of time that they can for the most meaningful results and have fun while they're doing it. So basically like work sprints that are facilitated. And I believe that creating that vulnerable space is the job of leadership and management, especially for management. There is no other purpose in the modern workforce other than to create a great space for people to accelerate. That's it. And you have to do that by being vulnerable yourself and and creating that. So when I do a workshop, for instance, when you kick it off, it's crucial. And if you start with that round of introductions, hi, this is me, blah, blah, blah. What you have is a room of people sitting around a conference table and everybody's nervous and everybody's worried about what am I going to say and what are people going to think? And you don't actually hear anybody else's introductions because you're rehearsing it in your head, what you're going to say. Is this Mm -hmm. true? Mm -hmm. Right? You're rehearsing your thing. Totally. So you're not actually meeting each other. So I don't do that. The first thing that I do to create that vulnerability is I'll deploy a different kind of an introduction technique. I love the Japanese competitive PowerPoint game called Pecha Kucha. And what I do is I do a sneaky research on everybody and I come up with three slides for each person and they don't know I'm doing this. I don't have a word or an image, but it's something related to them both professionally and personally. And I say, okay, everybody, instead of introductions, your name is going to appear on the screen. You don't know the order of this. And there's going to be a word or a picture and you have one minute to extemporaneously speak on this. But I guarantee it's something you can speak on. Wow. So you do it three times and then we're going to move to the next person. So everybody only speaks for three minutes. So you, you can't possibly get bored listening to them. And you can't possibly rehearse what you're going to say because you have no idea what I'm putting on the screen. Yeah. And then you get these stories of people who like, climbed Mount Everest or, you know, had quintuplets and what that's meant for their life. And then you get to know like, you know, some of their professional accomplishments too, but it's all mixed together. And now we have a much more robust understanding of who we are as people. And then we can get about the business of like getting to the strategy work. What I love about that is it's going to facilitate connection so much more quickly. And I'll just speak for myself. I can't be vulnerable in a room full of people where I don't feel any connection. Mm. I mean, I'd like to say I can, and I'd like to say I would, but it's hard enough to be vulnerable around people you don't know. It's hard to be vulnerable around people you do know, even. Exactly, right? And so I love how you're describing this way of opening a little window into each of the people in the room in a way that is really going to help at least some subset of people feel more connected to a subset of people. And I think about how often when we meet somebody new, we introduce ourselves in these somewhat guarded ways, right? There's a whole lot of what and not a whole lot of who. So, right? It's so it's super interesting. It is also interesting for us to me, I'll take Sherry's model here. I'll speak for myself, but It'll come to a question. So I know about myself because I love to facilitate as well. But I also know 
that that is still an opportunity to hide a little bit or to not fully show up as me, Mm -hmm. even as I'm pulling it out of other people. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious if you think when you are facilitating, is it an opportunity for you to be more vulnerable and more fully show up? Or is it that opportunity to kind of just facilitate others? It is an opportunity now to, to more show up. I kind of stumbled onto it by accident. Again, it was one of those things where a client was like, can you facilitate this workshop for two days at the, you know, in San Francisco, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, sure. Whatever that is. <laughs> oh, actually, and then all those hours watching Prices Right with Mimi came into play because I started to like basically plagiarize games from game shows to get insights. And I realized that I like to be a bit of a showman and Willy Wonka is kind of my <laughs> hero in that way. <laughs> I'm loving this list. Uh, first we had Spicoli, now we have Willy Wonka. I'm digging it. <laughs> well, and I'm also loving The Price is Right as an excellent training ground for your future professional life. I don't know what this is going to sound like. <laughs> this is jacked up. But to give people a show and an experience and make it really fun and basically trick them into being productive and authentic and engaged. Because I, I do think that there's this horrible idea we have that work has to always be serious and dour. And I think that's bull. And so okay. it is me to come and be that Willy Wonka in the room. And I can do it with some self-deprecating humor. And I will usually share an anecdote somewhere in there to show I'm just as flawed as everybody else. Oh so that's, God. I guess, a, like a lead by example. Yeah. So... I'm curious about one other thing, which is we're talking about vulnerability and some of the courageous moments that you've had. And when I was doing a little research on you for the podcast, because even though we've had a few meals together, this isn't the typical conversation that we have. You had a (laughs) piece. Maybe it should be. (laughs) Maybe it should be going forward, right? You had an article on Medium and you talked about some of the ups and downs and twists and turns of being an independent contractor. But the piece that I'm really interested in talking a little bit about is you mentioned having to overcome the fear of saying no to a client or a project that wasn't right for you. And I'm interested in having a little conversation about that because I'm thinking back to earlier where you made the comment that you're driven to please people and to adapt. And so I'm curious how you ultimately reconciled those two things. You did your homework. I did do my homework. (laughs) It's funny because my head is going to, I wrote a piece about one of my greatest professional failures. It was just atrocious. And how I should have said no, because I always knew it wasn't a good match for me. I can't Mm. remember what was that. No, I didn't find that one. I have to go look for that one when we're done. I have learned that my methodologies and the way I like to do things aren't for everybody. I learned this with a client. So I kind of fall in love with all my clients and projects because I see the potential and everything. And it's a blind love. So I can get swept up in the romance of the potential of where I can take things with somebody's brand story. And I learned with this one client that it is to my detriment to not consider what they really want. Sometimes they're not asking for what they really want, but if you listen, you can hear it. And also how they want to receive information. That's all I'll say about that. 
Well, and what I love about that is that is so broadly applicable to work, to personal life, to beware of the trap of wanting something to be what it's not, Mm. right? Or to fall in love with the potential, again, whatever it is, whether it's in your personal life, in your professional life, with a friend, with a more intimate partner, it, it could be anything. But it's just such a great piece of wisdom to really be honest with yourself on, am I being drawn to the right thing, right? Or am I making it up to be something it's not? Yeah, because it can devolve into manipulation, stubbornness, control, because you are trying to force it to work Mm -hmm. rather than recognize like, hey, this actually isn't working. The only thing I can change is me. So either I can change to flex to that, or I can say, you know what, this isn't a great match and that's okay. And let's move on. I think a lot of, at least for me, especially somebody who's like, has their own company. There is a scarcity mindset that can set in so that you you feel like you have to say yes to everything or make everything work because you're like, where will the next paycheck come from? Like that's another, that's a whole other can of worms. It's just learning to let go of that scarcity mindset. And I think there's this sort of line that we walked. I mean, Sherry and I talk about it as well. Like we need to fall a little bit in love with each of our podcast Mm. guests, for instance. So I think that there's something amazing about allowing yourself to fall in love a little bit and realizing when not all loves are meant to be. <laughs> Some loves are, are temporary. Right? <laughs> it's a great thing if we take that a little further. Think about if you fall in love with, like, let's say every project or client, if you find the thing that you can focus on that you really want to magnify and if you find the people that you want to work with and then want to work with you in the way that you authentically show up and you do that time after time, I guess I didn't realize this till now, but you have soon created like an entire universe. In this case, we're talking about work, but your entire universe surrounded with like projects and people and organizations that you naturally thrive in. Yes. And how great is that? Right. Wow. And that's the possibility that's out there. And there is this lovely benefit to culling what isn't a match. It's not because anybody else is wrong or what, but if you cull that, you've created this room for all the stuff that does work for you. And your life gets a lot easier. Even if it gets busier, it gets easier. Yeah, for sure. What's so incredible about what you just said is it brings us completely full circle back to the importance of really allowing yourself to know who you are and allowing yourself to really get what you want and what's important. Because you can't do what you just described if you don't allow yourself to really know yourself and give yourself permission to be yourself. And so there's just like this beautiful symmetry in the way this conversation has evolved. It's so funny. I was just so terrified about like, am I just going to say answers that don't? (laughs) I'm learning so much listening to the two of you and processing through you. That first book that I wrote, Being Different Matters, I am now seeing that that is basically 12 exercises. I call it the Job Seekers Manual for the New Economy. And for those, especially with nonlinear career paths, it's how do you make sense of the story of what you've done in the past and connect it to what you want to do in the future. And there are 12 exercises. 
And in those exercises, especially one called PAVES, you end up looking for the outliers in who you are and the patterns, the recurring themes. And a lot of the outliers, especially when we do these with like MBA students, my co-author and I will do workshops around this. It's always like these weird little nuggets of like, <laughs> I used to climb radio towers and fix the tops of them, or I was a skydive instructor or whatever. And now I, you know, now I want to be like an insurance broker. It's always the weird things that are the outliers that give us this crystal clear point of view of what makes them exceptional. Hmm. And then you can use that as a metaphor for telling the story of where they want to go. I guess that kind of comes full circle back yeah. to me understanding like the, the weirdness in me or my peculiarities or what makes me stand out is actually what grants me a path to success. Well, and it's interesting because I also think it's often those weird things or those outlier things or the things that come to us very, very naturally that we almost kind of push, oh, well, that's just that's just easy, right? right? Like yeah. that's not really what is important. What's important is my, I'm going to make fun of Sherry again here, my accounting skills, right? <laughs> like <laughs> we negate those things that, that kind of give us a little spark of joy or that we are just natural at. So we figure, well, everybody can do that because it comes naturally to me. Right. Or we make up this story that, well, that doesn't count as real work or that right, doesn't count as this real thing because it's fun and it's not hard. So there's so many ways we like mess the stuff up in our heads. Totally. Yeah. No, I, I love that you, you brought that up and that like the things that are part of our, our flow that we don't even see. I mean, think about that. What if your work felt like that? We equate work with hard or yeah. with effort. What if work was more effortless yeah. because we were working in whatever modality that, that is right for us? Yeah. I just put this on my LinkedIn. I, one of my little taglines is, I believe work doesn't have to suck. Like, <laughs> and it's exactly, yeah, totally. It's like our <sighs> cultural consciousness that work has to suck and you have, you know, nine to five and it's going to drain you and da, 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 da. Yeah. The, the employer who figures out a better way, like who destroys that myth and creates a great place where you're excited to go. Yeah. That's that company. Unstoppable. Unstoppable. Yeah, unstoppable because you don't have to worry about retention or attraction of talent. For sure. Well, I mean, so much of what we're talking about and so much of the arc of this conversation has been about really getting to know yourself a little bit, how you facilitate in your first book, helping people sort of prepare for work world or whatever by really understanding themselves. And now you have a new book coming out just in time for the holidays called The Hello Book. And Sherry and I were so lucky to catch you when last time we were in San Diego and we got to see an early prototype of it. But tell us a little bit, because it's it's an extension of the same thing we're talking about. So tell us a little bit about The Hello Book. The Hello Book is a fill-in-your-story book for adults who want to share who they really are with the children in their lives. And when I was a little kid, there was a Dr. Seuss book called My Book About Me, and it asked you, like, basic questions, and you fill it out. I still have my book. I have you know, the drawing of my hand. And I, I love think it. After years, I would redo it. So my hand keeps getting bigger. Um, <laughs> apparently, I really was fascinated by hippos. Um, so you have this thing. What I always thought, like, what if there was like an adult version of this? And a long time ago, I was having uh, lunch with my grandmother, the same one, Mimi, and I. It kind of evolved into an interview, and I found out all these interesting things about her. Like, she always wanted to be a private investigator. And she had illegally oh. changed her name. Her, her first name wasn't really her first name. 
Hmm. according to any legal documents. I discovered all these things and I thought, wow, she's so interesting. I had no idea. And from that was born this idea, like what if there was a way for adults to tell their story and pass it on to their child or their niece or nephew or their godchild or whoever. And so I sat on this idea for a couple of decades. And then finally I employed my friend Carrie. I said, please get me to do this. Help me make this book happen. So we put together the questions. I knew anybody could put together a book of questions. So I focused on finding a really kick-ass illustrator. And oh my God, it's beautiful. It's amazing. Her name is Carmen Navarro. She's from Spain. I wanted something much more graphic and rich and interesting for adults, not just to look like a kiddie book, but I wanted to appeal to adults and children. She knocked it out of the park. I give her all the credit, but I wanted to create a book that if you received it from an adult in your life, you would never want to let it go. The idea is like, this is a book you would keep forever. Yeah. We start off with some easy questions. And on like the left page would be a question that you answer about yourself as the adult. On the right is a permutation of that question, but it's your perspective as relates to the child reading the book. Mm. And mm. some of the questions are light and fun and easy. Some are darker. There's one about family secrets or there's one about what you were afraid of as a child. And Because I think children can handle all levels of truth. They're smarter than us. They know what's going on. They're very intuitive and they're not filtered and they want to know who we are. Yeah. And so that is the purpose in this book. And uh, I hope people like it. I think it's quite beautiful. It's so beautiful is what I can say. But what I love about it is it's also, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it feels a little cathartic because it's very full circle. Like I am facilitating the questions to allow other people to be seen by some of the most important people in their lives. Good call. And I'm excited because this episode is going to drop right before the holidays and it will be out so people can actually, will will they be able to buy it on Amazon or where will? Yeah, they will be able to buy it on Amazon. It's called The Hello Book. And my name is Willis Wright. I don't think there's another Hello Book on there, but there you go. I feel confident saying there's not another hello book out there by a, another Forrest Wright as yeah. well. <laughs> yes. I think it's a great thing for the holidays. I know I'm plugging this, but you know, you can give somebody a gift that they will keep forever and it's under $50. I love so, it. Yeah, I love, love it. That. That's awesome. Well, continuing the thread of little kids, if you could go back in time and you're whispering in little force ear who's sitting on the carpet in Mimi's house. What's one piece of advice that you would give him? I would tell him, go be as flamboyant and as outrageous as you want to be. Don't worry about the people who can't handle it. Mm. I remember just telling myself, I'm not going to be that person because I was quite an animated child. (laughs) And I really wanted to fit in and I decided not to be so animated. Mm. It's really fun to basically make a profession where I get to be (laughs) more (laughs) more animated, more creative. And so I would just say, go for it. Don't, don't waste decades. Just go have some fun. I love Mm -hmm. it. And y'all can't see Forrest's face, but he's just sort of lit up talking about that and and what he could whisper in, in little Forrest's ear. So that's beautiful. So Forrest, I really want to thank you so much for joining us today. This has been just an absolute delight and just what a journey of self-discovery and understanding yourself and letting yourself be seen and letting that, the flamboyance of the little child that wanted to to come out, like letting that manifest now in the beautiful ways and the beautiful gifts you give to us in the world now. So thank you so much. 
And on that note, that wraps up our episode for today. We really hope you enjoyed it and would love it if you would share our podcast with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes or post it to your own social media. We want to wish you a very, very happy holiday season. We'll be taking a week off our normal schedule, but we'll be back with new episodes on January 5th. Please join us then for Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life.